So these weeks I am um, going through uh, what's known as the seven faculties, seven capacities that we all have, which um, are cultivated and developed in the course of traditional Buddhist practice. And um, in their cultivation, they, when, they're, when they're really strong, um, when you develop, so they're kind of latent capacities that we all have, in a sense, and then they can be developed to a point of being quite strong. And then they get it, then they're no longer called the five faculties, but they're called the five powers. So there's the powers that we can carry with us and use in different ways in our life. And these five are confidence, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom or discernment. And I've talked, two weeks ago I talked about the first, that of confidence. And last week I talked about effort. And today I'm going to talk about mindfulness. And mindfulness is uh, really key to um, what we do here, the insight meditation practice. Our core practice is mindfulness practice. It's uh, one of the jewels in the crown jewel, you know, the crown of Buddhism, one of the seven crown jewels, I guess. Um, It's very, very important in the Buddhist tradition and uh, something that Buddhists will cultivate and develop with great enthusiasm. The question is, what is mindfulness? And uh, how do we practice it? And how does this practice of mindfulness relate to these five faculties which get developed? How is it that mindfulness can become a power, not just a possibility, not just a capacity we have that we use here and there, but actually a power that we carry with us? So the word for mindfulness is sati in Pali, in Sanskrit is smriti. And it's um, probably the simplest definition that kind of respects the ancient meaning of it is something like um, keeping something in the mind, holding something in the mind, to keep something in the mind. To be mindful is to keep in mind. So um, if you have something important you have to remember, you keep it in mind. If you uh, want to um, focus on your breath in the course of meditation, you keep the breath in mind. So keep something in mind, keep something in awareness, to hold it in in awareness, bear it in mind. Um, is kind of the meaning. So you can kind of remember it kind of in a silly way, cute way perhaps, but to be mindful is to fill the mind, to keep the mind full of what's happening in the present moment in some way. The word for, the word sati in, uh, also has the meaning in, um, in ancient languages of to remember. And so it also means to kind of hold something in mind, to remember something you held in mind for a long time. Um, so to remember is to be sati. So the English word to recollect also works as a translation, or to keep in mind, but to, or to recollect, to, um, to recollect what you have to remember, to, re- to recollect uh, the purpose of your life, to recollect the purpose of the practice, or recollect your values, to keep it in mind, all these different things. So the word keep in mind, is re- the expression is relatively, somewhat ambiguous, exactly what it means. And so the word sati in Pali is a little bit ambiguous. You don't want to have a fixed you know, definition. Now I know what it means. It just means to, you know, to be aware of the present moment or just means to know what's happening. There's a range of things that sati means. Just as the expression to keep in mind has a little kind of a range of things that it means. It's uh, sometimes been said to be akin to or same as a presence of mind. Uh, when, some, when there's a real strong presence of mind, um, there's a lot of things that are there. Um, uh, often there's a you know, keen awareness of the present moment, a keen awareness that you're aware. Your strong presence, I mean, you kind of know you're present then, you kind of know you're here. 
a presence, a presence of mind also has an element of discernment, of wisdom as part of it. Um, you know, the salesman came to my door to sell me a piece of the moon, and I had a presence of mind to know that that was not a good investment. So there's a certain kind of understanding, street smarts that can go with a certain, when you say, a presence of mind. It isn't just simply having awareness. Um, the opposite, you can have a, a real strong presence of mind, perhaps would be someone who's deranged, kind of really crazy, and, um, or someone who's you know, phenomenally furious or angry, perhaps, where there's not much presence in mind in their activity. That person can still be aware. They're aware that, you know, who they're yelling at, but um, there's not much presence of mind. They're not really aware of what they're doing. They're not aware of the context of what they're doing it in, the impact they have. There isn't much presence of mind, we might say, uh, even though there might be a lot of awareness. Some crazy person might be very much in the present moment. There's no presence of mind. So there's a, there's, there's a spectrum or a range from being having no presence, presence of mind at all while being aware, perhaps, to having being aware and having tremendous presence of mind, very strong presence of mind. With a sense of presence of mind, it feels really palpable in, you know, in a person. Um, you, you know, you're really here, you know you're here, and you're very clear about your response, your reactions, and you're kind of in control. To have a very strong presence of mind, I think, has an element, some element of being in control of the situation. Not the situation, but maybe in control of your ability to respond to the situation. You can act or not act in the situation as is needed. You're not going to act reactively. You have enough presence of mind to maybe see a reaction arise, but you're not going to buy into it. You're not going to be caught by it. You just let it be. So to be mindful is to have a, a presence of mind. To develop mindfulness is to, is to develop a very strong presence of mind, or a strong sense of presence being here. It's said that sati um, is um, kind of like salt, which is needed in every curry or in every soup. And so salt, uh, sati mindfulness is needed in every practice, in every state of mind, every experience. Sati is always useful. Uh, the Buddhists say you can never have too much sati, too much mindfulness. Uh, you can have too much faith. You can have too much wisdom. Can you believe that? Uh, they say you can have too much uh, effort. You can be too, you know, much, put too much energy into your practice. You can have too much concentration. But you can never have too much um, mindfulness. So sati, this, this presence of mind or this ability to keep something in mind, has... Um, a number of functions. And the first one is the one I think most people here in the West are familiar with. It's kind of a function or an aspect of mindfulness which is celebrated and, um, and uh, by many, many teachers. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great book called The Miracle of Mindfulness where he talks about this. And that is um, to live in the present moment with a certain directness and alertness. To be present for our experience as it's happening. And that's kind of the simplest way many people in the West understand what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is to be present and aware of what's happening in the present moment. And this is something which is available all the time to all of us. It's, it's, kind of, it's a possibility to be directly alert, present, aware of what's happening here in your body as you're sitting here. You can tune into your body right now. You know, feel your stomach, your chest, your arms, your head, your back, contact with your, your chair or the ground. You, you can um, direct awareness of what's happening is available at any moment. It's celebrated uh, partly because an enhanced awareness of the present moment brings a lot of pleasure, a lot of enjoyment of life. Um, it can bring a lot of healing in our life. 
partly if you're really present, um, you're kind of protected from those harmful consequences that can arise when the mind is not present. Um, if you're not present, you're not going to see the red light and you're going to have an accident when you're driving. If you're not present, your mind is lost you know, in um, thinking about the future or the past and you're not going to notice that I just said something really wise because you weren't really here or drifted off. <laughs> you didn't have the presence of mind to really hold Gil's Dharma talk in your mind and your mind wandered off and you'll never be the same. You just missed the chance. <laughs> and so, so to, you know, we often see the consequences of not being present is not very helpful for us. And so, and to be present, there's a lot of wonderful things that can happen. It can be healing for some of us, you know, or refreshing to go see the sunset at the beach, or, or to be in the woods and really be present for that experience, or to go listen to music and really be present. Some years ago, I went to a concert. And before the intermission, I had a hard time to be really present for the music. Um, my mind kept wandering off and drifting and judging and analyzing the, the orchestra I was looking at. I finally had to close my eyes so I could hear the music. And only then would the mind quiet down, settle down enough to really take in the music and be able to keep it in mind, the music, and hear it, have a presence there. And after the, trans, after the um, intermission, then I was, had arrived. By the time, and, so, and then I came back and I keep my eyes open and... I wasn't distracted anymore. I could really be there for the music. And that was just, just delightful to be there for that music. The analogy that I sometimes like of um, developing our strong presence of mind, really being here fully present, is that of someone who um, is living in a house. Maybe they were born in this house. They never, le- never left the house. The curtains have been pulled the whole lifetime. And they have this great television. I mean, not just nowadays, you know, a television is, you know, like... If you have a 20-inch television now, you're like ancient. You're supposed to have a television that's 52 inches. You know, that's really if you're cool. So really big television. Maybe you're born into a house that has this big television. You know, it's a flat screen, so it's up against the wall. It's very nice. And you have cable. And someone told me on their cable, they get 600 channels. <laughs> so you're born into this house that has 600 channels. It's great big, you know. And there's a lot of great things on television. It's interesting. You can watch comedy and news and sports and you know it's the whole range in the shopping channel and uh, you know there's a lot of worthwhile things you can do there and it's you know if you get bored you can just change the channel and you can see something different and you're, you're constantly entertained and you know you have control and you know if it's boring you have the wisdom to change it to something more interesting and, and it's vivid color television it's very you know vivid and very present and beautiful music you have nice speaker systems on the side and you know surround sound I guess you know different sides and uh, if you go to the bathroom, of course, there's a little television that keeps you connected. Because it's always important to be connected, right? It's part of the goal of religious life, to be connected. So you, so you have the television with you, you know, a little, little one in the bathroom. And, um, and, of course, you know, in the hallway, and, of course, you know, in your bedroom, and, of course, in the kitchen. And, and you probably have a split, split screen, so you're really connected to things. And you, you're born into this house, and that's the way you live. And you don't know any better. You know, that's all there is, and you're pretty happy, and... Someone tells you, you know, there's a more interesting ways of living. You can go outside. No, no, no. This is really great. It's really wonderful. Can you believe it? I have 600 channels. And then someday, you know, after you've been doing that for 30, 40 years, the, um, the electricity goes out. <laughs> and so you kind of wonder, what do I do now? And say, well, there's this door here. So you open the door and you go outside. and You're just amazed at uh, a three-dimensional world. You, you know, your world was two-dimensional all that time. 
And suddenly there's three dimensions, and not only three dimensions, but all your senses come alive. There's the, the feeling of the breeze against your cheeks, and the smell of the flowers, and the you know, feeling of humidity, perhaps, and you know, all kinds of wonder, wonderful things. And um, that you know, the world suddenly seems three-dimensional. And the world now has come alive in a very different way. Um, that's somehow the way it can be with uh, strong presence of mind. And people who uh, do practice sometimes, have a regular practice, meditation practice, sometimes will have that experience of, of kind of coming out of meditation where they've cultivated a very strong presence, kind of uh, let go of the tendency of the mind to wander and drift and not be here, be distracted or not really be here in a direct way. And, they come, and the, the world just seems to sparkle, just amazing. You can look down at a piece of trash on the sidewalk and wow, that's far out. It's beautiful. Can you believe the glittering silver down there, this candy wrapper? And it sounds silly, right? Who don't admit, admit that in public because, you know, you know that's, people think you're strange. But, uh, but things start sparkling, coming alive, when the mind is not um, clouded by a lot of distractions, by a lot of preoccupations. And there's a kind of a directness in our experience, in our life. A lot of the ways in which we suffer have to do with being preoccupied. So part of the celebrating of the present moment and really being present for this life as it is, actually is, is an antidote to the suffering that comes from being distracted. In the classic texts, one of the definitions of mindfulness is to, um, is to have a mind which is not distracted. It's a definition of absence, what's absent, a distracted mind. But when the mind is not distracted, then there's a strong presence of mind, or so you're able to keep the present moment in mind, keep what's going on in the present, present. So that's one of the primary functions of mindfulness, is, and that's what's most well known here in the West. But there are other functions of mindfulness, very important ones, especially very important ones as part of the Buddhist path. And, uh, uh, and what I'll do is describe these in relationship to the other four faculties, these other four capacities that make up a very important list in Buddhism. So I'll go through them again. Confidence or faith, trust is the first one, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And mindfulness works together with these other four to bring them into balance with each other. It's considered to be one of the functions of mindfulness is to balance these other four. As I said, you can have too much faith, you can have blind faith, um, and faith needs to be balanced with wisdom. And it's a function of mindfulness to help bring those into balance. Uh, you can have too much wisdom, as, kind of, as understood as kind of intellectual understanding, and not enough kind of heartfelt quality, kind of mind over the heart. Kind of. You can be in your, in your head and understand a lot, but you don't really have a heartfelt connection, sense of confidence or trust or heartfeltness in that connection, kind of dry understanding. So it's said that mindfulness, uh, wisdom, and needs to be balanced with faith. Um, effort needs to be balanced with concentration. If you have too much effort, then it's said uh, the person becomes too agitated. There's too much energy going through. So you need to have uh, to match the effort with concentration because concentration will bring um, tranquility or quietness to the mind, quietness to the system. You can have actually a lot of energy and you can also not be restless. You can be at rest at the same time. If you have too much concentration and not enough effort, tendency is to have, fall asleep or get sleepy or, or kind of dull in the mind. So you need to bring up the effort. The Buddhist spiritual life is understood to be a life of balance, the middle path, coming into balance, 
Buddhist practice is, is always about finding the balance among many different things. And these five faculties is uh, pointing to some of these issues of, of balance. And mindfulness doesn't need to be balanced, but mindfulness is what allows the others to be balanced. You have to have a presence of mind in order to bring, see what needs to happen uh, in order to bring the other in, these other in balance. So faith um, is a partner to mindfulness. It's a very important aspect. Um, uh, when there's faith, that's, when faith is present, mindfulness is seen as a refuge, as a source of protection, as a source of inspiration. Partly, when there's uh, faith or confidence, then there can be a connection of the mindfulness to um, the ultimate values and goals of Buddhist practice. The possibility of freedom, the possibility of, of, um, of, of uh, not being caught, the possibility of... Um, well, protection is a word which is used a lot by the tradition. Being protected by being caught by all the different ways that the mind gets caught and preoccupied in ways that often harm us, harm, we harm ourselves doing it. Part of the function of faith is to help us uh, be inspired and keep us inspired with a big picture of what the mindfulness practice is about, or why we're, why we're being mindful. That we're not just being mindful for the value of mindfulness. We're being mindful because mindfulness brings... Um, uh, a lot of benefit to our life. It's an extremely helpful uh, state of mind, uh, practice to have. And so we keep the bigger picture that what we're trying to do with practicing mindfulness is to help liberate the mind, help free the mind or the heart, help not being caught by our experience, help develop a useful presence in our life so that we can bring that presence to our friends and family and ourselves and to the world that we live. When mindfulness is connected to effort, and then mindfulness um, is likened to a watch, watchman, watch person, watchman. Um, and in the ancient world, uh, when they had these walled cities, uh, there would be a gate into a walled city. And there would be a watchman, a guardsman, a watchman at, the, a watchman at the gate. And that watchman's job was to see who was leaving and arriving into the city. And if who was arriving shouldn't be coming into the city, they were coming to, then the function of the, uh, the guardsman was the watchman to say, no, you can't come in. Close the door on them. And if uh, they were desirable types, then they would let them come in. And the function of the watchman is to watch who was coming in and out. This is an ancient analogy I'm giving you. And so part of the function of mindfulness is to, is to be your own guard, in a sense, and to watch very carefully what you allow in and out, uh, especially in terms of what you choose to act on. All kinds of things arise in your awareness, arise in the mind, impulses, desires, wishes, um, thoughts. And the function of mindfulness is to stand guard over the mind and to have some choice about what you allow into your operating system, what you operate on, what you act on. Um, and so you have some choice. And so it's a very important ethical aspect where we apply ourselves then, we make effort not to be taken over by a strong impulse that arises. So the mindfulness protects us from being swept away by a strong impulse. So you're walking down the street, you walk by an ice cream parlor, and the next thing you know, you're holding an ice cream in your hand. Then you've been taken over. 
the watchman wasn't there. But if you can really see the impulse to want ice cream arise, and you choose wisely, you have a presence of mind to choose wisely whether it's useful to buy the ice cream or not, um, then mindfulness is operating. And you might decide, no, I don't need one. I just had one an hour ago. So, you know, I don't need one. I'll let it go. So, that, so you stand watch over the mind. So part of mindfulness is to stand watch and apply effort, the kind of effort, to choose and let go of the things which are not useful and to pick up those things which are useful, to act on those things which should be acted on. So part of the function of mindfulness is to ensure that what arises in the mind does not cause further, doesn't not cause harm, doesn't lead you to a harmful direction, but rather maybe leads you to beneficial directions that you have. Now we cannot, it's said that we cannot have much control over what pops up in our mind. All kinds of things will pop up. Um, some, you know, I feel very lucky that when I was a young boy, I was about 14 or so, 13. My father said to me, and his little father-son talks, he pulled me aside and he said, Gil, as you grow up, you're going to have some really bizarre thoughts. Um, everyone does. Don't worry about it. And guess what? Periodically, I had really bizarre thoughts. And I had been warned about it. So I didn't feel terrible or guilty or ashamed. I just thought, oh, this is interesting. And, um, and uh, all kinds of things can pop up. And so mindfulness is just allow it to pop, not to be in reactive mode to it, not to criticize or blame or feel like you shouldn't have murderous rage, you know, all kinds of things can arise. So there's a kind of art in mindfulness in learning how to step out of the way or give space or pause that allows our inner life to be there as it is in a certain way, to arise as it is. The arising, you allow the rising to happen and not be judgmental about it, not be critical or, or not to de- deny it. To, to deny it, or to hate what's happening, just adds more harm to the system. Just causes more difficulties for us. You don't want to deny, you don't want to admit what's going on. You also don't want to necessarily grab everything that arises. You want to have the, you want to, you want to have the presence of mind that has some choice for what to do with what has arisen. And part of the choice is just let it be. You don't have to, you don't have to take it personally. You don't have to use what has arisen as a, as a way to define who you are. I'm a terrible person because I anger arose. You can just be angry arising without any conclusions being made. So part of the function of mindfulness is to see the possibility of just leaving things alone. Just this by itself. Another function of mindfulness is to um, uh, help uh, meet what's happened or add to what's happening helpful states. So the arise, you know, things arise on their own. Things also arise in our mind because we prompt them, we encourage them. And we can take some control, or uh, control maybe is not the best word, but we can take some responsibility for what arises in our minds. We can't take absolute responsibility. You can't have complete control over all the things that happen in your mind. If you want to control your mind, you're in trouble. But you can take some responsibility for the state of, the state of your mind, for the quality of your mind. And so part of the, uh, part of the um, uh, joining together of mindfulness and effort is that when there's a presence of mind, we can also make the effort to encourage helpful qualities of mind, helpful states of mind, helpful activities of the mind. It's said that one of the most healthiest activities of the mind is mindfulness itself. So if anger or something uncomfortable arises, uh, you can choose to just bring more mindfulness, more non-reactive awareness to that experience. Just that, that's enough. That's a very wise thing to do. 
And in the Vipassana movement, we put a lot of emphasis on, on meeting the experience with this very skillful state of more mindfulness. Um, and we don't even talk about skillful or unskillful or helpful or un- unhelpful. We just talk about just keep being mindful. But mindfulness is understood, understood to be a helpful state to bring, to have present. But there are a lot of other uh, states that you can bring up, the qualities or things in the mind you can bring up. Sometimes it's helpful to bring up loving kindness. Sometimes it's helpful to bring up a sense of discipline. Sometimes it's helpful to bring up uh, a sense of um, compassion or uh, concentration or um, wisdom or many different things to meet what's going on and to, so to kind of water seeds of wholesomeness or skillfulness, beneficial seeds in, in the mind so those seeds can grow. What, what grows in the mind depends a lot, lot upon what you feed. And if you feed your anger, anger will grow. If you feed your love, love will grow. And so part of the function of mindfulness and effort is, is to see what's there in the mind and see what's possible in the mind and then make some effort to, to shape or to water or feed that which you want to encourage and not feed that which you don't want to encourage. Taking some responsibility from the mind. We don't want to abdicate our responsibility as practitioners. Buddhism has a, puts a lot of emphasis on, on responsibility, but you, even though we can't control, ultimately. I liken uh, this kind of um, quality of taking responsibility and nurturing that which is as skillful and helpful to that of having a grandmotherly mind. Um, the grandmotherly mind in Buddhism is understood to be a mind that um, loves the children, loves the grandchildren, um, with kind of great acceptance, uh, great equanimity, uh, has seen the ups and downs of children and doesn't take every little drama as being so, you know, major issue, but rather, you know, you know, first-time parents, so they're so, you know, fragile. You have to be very careful around first-time parents. I've noticed that first-time, first-hand experience. But grandmothers, you know, like my mother, you know, Gail, you're, you're too worried, whatever. So to have this kind of spacious quality of mind, but at the same time as nurturing that which is helpful, has a wise approach, not getting caught up in the drama of what is unskillful in a child. Today I came home. There was a message in our machine from another mother. My son was going to have a play date this afternoon after school. And I guess in the morning, the mother, mother called my wife to say, oh, I don't think Jeremy can have a play date today. I don't think Torrance should come over to our house. He's already had three meltdowns today. And... He's taken the um, uh, padlocks and locked the, uh, um, uh, the, car, the car seats together. And we, can't, and we can't find the keys. And my husband is now out there with a the, with the hacksaw trying to <laughs> saw through the padlocks when we take our son to school. This is, you know, all before 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so... It helps to have grandmotherly mind. <laughs> it's said that uh, greed, hate, and delusion cannot be present when there's mindfulness. So mindfulness itself is understood to be a very, very healing and helpful state of mind to have. As long as you're mindful, as long as you have this very clear presence of mind of what's happening, in an odd way, it says, there can be no greed, hate, and delusion present. Um, I don't quite completely understand this. It's a piece of orthodoxy, kind of almost kind of an article of faith among some Buddhists. This is true. 
But how I understand it is when the presence of mind is strong, in that presence of mind, you're not act, liable to act on greed, hate, and delusion, even though it might be kind of circulating around in there. So that's uh, mindfulness and effort. Effort comes into play with mindfulness. Mindfulness relates to effort. Make an effort. Then mindfulness um, is connected to concentration. Concentration uh, supports mindfulness by supporting a continuity of mindfulness over time. So it isn't just simply we touch into the present moment every five minutes or once an hour or something, maybe a little deeper, and, oh, here I am. But rather the presence of mind is here continuously. The continuity of presence. Um, and um, this becomes extremely important if you want to take the mindfulness to its full potential in Buddhist practice. You cannot take mindfulness to its full potential without cultivating continuity of it. It's not enough just to touch in periodically, but you want to develop and strengthen it so it becomes a power that stays, you know, moment by moment by moment. You're really present, you really track what's going on. Um, it's not a phenomenally high degree of mindfulness you need. Uh, or continuity or concentration you need. It's not like, you know, you need to the Olympics or something. You can't train for that. Um, probably uh, the amount of concentration you have when you read a really good novel and uh, you're, you're so much into it that someone says, you know, knocks on your door and you don't hear the knock. Um, does that happen to some of you sometimes? Uh, that's probably all you need to take uh, mindfulness all the way to enlightenment. Isn't that reassuring? <laughs> but you have to be as interested in your practice as you are with that novel. And that's hard. But if you can be that interested, you can have an easy time. So, um, so a part of the function of concentration is to, is to bring stability to the mindfulness, to help you with that continuity, to uh, keep you fixated or, or engage in the present without the mind tending to wander off and be scattered. It's likened in the tradition to a post. Um, in the ancient world, they sometimes had these big posts or pillars that they would embed into the front of a city they would go like, you know, like it was like maybe, I don't know, 30-foot post, but 10 feet of it would be buried in the ground so that it was really stable and strong. You couldn't budge it. So that kind of pillar, the mindfulness, uh, concentration provides mindfulness, that kind of stability where you're not going to uh, uh, be pushed over a lot, you're not going to be swept up by things, and you're just going to stay there rooted in the present moment, really rooted, really grounded here. Um, the mar- marrying together of concentration and mindfulness in the way I'm talking here has a word in Pali called apamada. It's one of the most important words in Buddhism. Uh, it's very closely connected to mindfulness. It's the word the Buddha used in his last thing he said before he died. Uh, he said, the last phrase he said was, uh, practice with apamada. Practice with, some people translate it as vigilance. Some people translate it as a con- con- uh, conscientiousness. Some people translate it as continuous mindfulness. Practice with continuity. Uh, with your practice, mindfully, carefully, moment by moment. Then mindfulness is sometimes uh, 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 connected to wisdom or arises together with wisdom, has an aspect of wisdom uh, that's very important to it. And it's often understood in the tradition that mindfulness is not stupid. Uh, mindfulness, in the sense that mindfulness is not just simply knowing things as they actually are in the moment. You know your breath as it actually is. Mindfulness also has the quality of being wise or discerning about what's happening in the present moment. So one of the aspects of wisdom um, is to know where it's useful to place your attention, your mindfulness. There's a lot of different things you can be mindful of in the present moment. When I was first introduced to Vipassana practice, this mindfulness practice, 
in Thailand. I was uh, I practiced in a monastery where I was given a little hut to practice by myself. I had interviews every day, and so I went back to my hut to practice the first day or two, and um, I had I had understood the instructions to say, um, pay attention to everything, to mean, pay attention to everything, and it, it was. I was wise enough to know I couldn't do that because so much was happening at the present moment I couldn't be mindful of all of it. So I thought, well, I'll just pay attention to the sounds in the monastery. It was a very noisy monastery. And so I tried to catch every sound. So my mind was racing to catch them all. Trying to, I just got a headache. And I went back to the teacher and I said, you know, I can't. And he said, oh, no, no. And you pay attention to everything, but uh, one thing at a time. <laughs> it's, kind of like, uh, it's kind of like serial monogamy. You know, you pay careful attention, fully committed to this thing that's arisen, and then the next thing that's arisen, you know. So, vipassana, serial monogamy. <laughs> so, you know, you, but some things are more useful to pay attention to others. It can be, you can have some discernment or wisdom about where you put your attention. The Buddha, in defining right mindfulness in the Eightfold Path, he defined it as the four foundations of mindfulness. He said it's useful to pay attention to your body, it's useful to pay attention to um, the feelings, the feeling tones of your experience. It's useful to pay attention to your, the state of the quality of your mind, the quality of your consciousness. And it's useful to pay attention to some of the processes that occur within your mind. That's not the same thing as saying it's useful to pay attention to everything. He doesn't mention that paying attention to sounds outside, particularly. There's a lot of things you don't pay you know, doesn't, doesn't say explicitly pay attention to thought, to thinking. Um, it's actually a subset of the full human experience that the Buddha defines as right mindfulness in, as part of the path. That's a little bit different than the way the mindfulness is taught here in the West where we teach people to pay attention to everything. It's a little bit different understanding. But there are some things which are more useful to pay attention to than other things. And it can be wise to, be, to have some choice about where you bring your presence. Once you have presence, what you're present for. So to recollect, to remember, to be mindful of certain things. One of the forms of mindfulness is called marana sati. Marana means death. So mindfulness of death, recollection of death. And this means, it's a little bit more active, it's simply a kind of non-discursive awareness. It means to bring up and recollect, to, to keep in mind the subject of death, maybe even think about it, because in a way that's supposed, in the way that's supposed to be helpful for our spiritual process. The texts say explicitly, if being mindful of recollecting death brings up grief and distress, then don't do it. But if it uh, helps arouse your uh, sense of inspiration, your sense of purpose, your sense of urgency, your sense of uh, uh, clarifying your values and what's really important in your life, it can be uh, to your benefit to spend time recollecting death, to be mindful of the subject of death and dying. I'm reminded of Catholic monks sometimes, I've been told, who would keep, maybe in Italy or somewhere, where they keep uh, the coffin they're going to be buried in, in their uh, room. There's some kind of reminder that's always there. Another thing that's uh, considered very helpful is anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and mindfulness of breathing out. There's a focus. This is really useful to pay attention to. Uh, The whole Buddhist path can be fulfilled by focusing on the breath. You don't have to worry about paying attention to anything else if you learn how to do that really well, anapanasati. 
Um, there's another uh, uh, sati called Buddha Anumus. I don't know the Pali word, but Buddha Anusmurti in Sanskrit. Um, mindfulness of the Buddha, recollection of the Buddha, keeping the Buddha in mind. Um, the qualities of the Buddha. For, for Buddhists to remember the qualities of the Buddha, how the Buddha's, the purity of the Buddha's mind, the, the, uh, the liberated quality of the Buddha's mind, the compassion of the Buddha. Uh, that's supposed to create a tremendous inspiration and um, for practice. Uh, that traditionally Buddhists will spend a lot of time remembering and being inspired by. Here in the West, sometimes we don't like a devotional aspect, and so we don't want to do that so much. But traditionally, it's considered a very helpful uh, uh, practice of mindfulness to be mindful of the qualities of the Buddha. Again, it's kind of a discursive mindfulness. As you remember, mindfulness has a range of meanings, because just just in the same way that keeping in mind has a range of meanings. There's also the idea of keeping in mind that which is helpful, or that which is lovely, that which is beautiful. So those qualities of mind which are beautiful and helpful for us, to keep those in mind. It said, you know, keeping something in mind, bringing attention, awareness to something, is a way of, is feeding things. The beautiful aspects of our psyche are fed by awareness. It's one of the great things of how the mind works. The more aware you are, the more you bring non-reactive mindfulness, this presence of mind, it has a way of feeding the, the beautiful and it has a way of starving that which is harmful. And I think that's really remarkable. Just simply being a very strong presence of mind. I, the analogy I like for it is that of a greenhouse. That maybe the curtains are pulled, so it's wet and damp and hot in the greenhouse. And as long as the curtains are pulled, um, the mold grows, you know, and the algae, and it's just kind of, you don't even want to go in there. And uh, but if you pull the curtains and the sunshine comes into the greenhouse, the sun just kind of dries up all that little moss and algae and stuff and all the beautiful flowers in there can blossom and grow. And it's great. So the flower, the plants grow with the light of awareness and the, and the plants and the moss and the ugly things kind of um, the mold and stuff, you know, dry up in the light of awareness. Part of this uh, uh, keeping in mind, bringing together wisdom and mindfulness is uh, keeping in mind um, the big picture, the potential, the possibility of uh, spiritual life. So that when we're engaged in mindfulness practice moment by moment, there's an aspect that we keep in mind that um, we're working with the deepest and fullest possibility of setting the mind, the heart free. And I think that this is, is a said, uh, you know, it's a little bit interpretive, but it's said explicitly in the, in the or implicitly in the, in the text called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where we're encouraged to pay attention to um, uh, the qualities of an enlightened mind, even in, the, even in the rudimentary kind of form within us. And we're taught to pay attention to the Four Noble Truths, which are the key aspect of liberation in Buddhist tradition. So we keep in mind those aspects of life which are liberating, which are beautiful to keep in mind the possibility of using this mindfulness to set the mind free. So not just simply to be present for the sunset, not just simply present enough to uh, reduce our stress or to have psychological healing, but to have a sense of a much bigger potential of realization that the practice in the, tr- in the traditional form is all about. So to keep that in mind, is a, I think, is a very important part of keeping the fire going and inspiration going and making the practice useful. Recollecting the noble life which is always available to us. 
recollecting that life, a life of nobility, a life of living in a way that's noble. The, the uh, nobility of uh, the Buddhism focuses on a lot about requires, you know, somebody who really has a sense of nobility, has a very strong sense of presence, I think. At least when someone's carrying themselves that way, there's a real presence of being, a presence of mind in the nobility of spirit that people can have. So, um, to keep in mind that presence, to cultivate the nobility of being, of spirit, with all the things that comes with that. So those are all aspects of mindfulness. Mindfulness is incredibly powerful. It's a great protection. It's a great gift we give to the world around us. Um, it's something we all have as a possibility. And it's something we can all develop. You get a sense of it, perhaps, when you should do, as you develop a presence of mind, a presence of being. And cultivate that to, until it becomes a power you carry with you everywhere. And as it becomes a power, the Buddhist path will become a slide. And you just slide down. So um, may you all get to the top of the slide and then let go.